go out to like a secluded <laughs> dock, uh, you know, stare out into the ocean and just think, you know, should I actually like Steph Curry? Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, a sports podcast from 538. If you're just joining us, this is a show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is June 4th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the assistant sports editor here at 538. I'm joined, as always, in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How are you today? I am fantastic. That's how are you? That's great to hear. <laughs> I'm uh, doing great, too. We're, we're taping a little earlier than usual, but, you know. And we are happy about it. We're so happy. <laughs> and on the line from Los Angeles is 538 sports editor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Sarah. How are you? It's really early here. It's really early for you. I would be doing even better had Game 2 of the NBA Finals just ended at halftime. Then my prediction of Raptors and five would be looking. I forgot you predicted. So good, it was looking so good. It could still happen. I forgot how aggressive that pick was. That was bold. I don't even care who wins this series. I really have no vested interest. I'm sort of still mad at Toronto for beating Milwaukee. I am only in this for the model. I want <laughs> our model to win. That's all I want. I'm sort of curious what the threshold is. Where you know how this phenomenon happens, where like. Teams, like, don't want to see the same team winning over and over until it reaches a certain point. And then you kind of have this weird thing as a fan where you, like, want to see dynasties and greatness. This is like the Tiger Woods-Roger Federer phenomenon. You want to see, or even Serena, you want to see how how much this one team or one person can win and how much history can they make. Have we passed that threshold? Are people rooting for the Warriors now? Yeah, I, I, I wonder whether we have. Um, I personally have even like crossed over into that territory almost with the Patriots now. I, I don't know if that's sacrilege mm. to say, uh, but just feeling like, you know, a, a te- you can almost plot, yeah, like championships won or years of the dynasty past versus annoyingness and then sort of just resignation, it, it kind of fading into resignation and being like, yeah, you know, I'm actually kind of impressed. I'm not even mad anymore. I'm just impressed. It's like the line from Anchorman. <laughs> a whole wheel of cheese? Um, yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I, I sort of have been feeling that with the Patriots. I know I can't say that. And yet... You just did. Well, I think the Boston sports thing, that itself will never not be annoying as we're in the midst of another um, Bruins finals run, although the St. Louis Blues took steps to perhaps Mm -hmm. avert that uh, last night. I'm going to need all of the basketball guys, all of the hockey guys to get out of the way here because it's time for the Women's World Cup. I am tired of basketball and hockey. I want to watch some soccer please. I want to all I want to do is watch Alex Morgan and Megan Rapino go kick butt on the international stage. Is that too much to ask? No. Thank you. US Open next week, Sarah, too. Don't forget. Belmont Stakes this weekend. No one talking about it. But now we are. <laughs> they might as well not run it. <laughs> I mean, they have to and we will definitely report on it next well, week at this time. <laughs> no, we won't. Not definitely. Okay. Well, on today's show, <laughs> We'll discuss what's behind the upsets at the French Open. We'll dig into the Major League Baseball draft, which began Monday night. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. We are barreling down to the finals of the French Open, which will take place this Saturday for the women and Sunday for the men. 
The women's side has seen plenty of upsets so far, including number one, Naomi Osaka, and number 10, Serena Williams, who were both knocked out in the third round. Here's Serena reflecting on the loss in her post-game interview. Serena, if somebody told you, given the two matches that you had to pull out of in the lead-up, that that you'd come this far, would you have taken it, or are you still very disappointed? Um, I would have thought they were lying, because I wouldn't expect to have gotten only to the third round. So I would have been like, that's not true. But hey, you know, it is what it is. What do you make of Serena's response, Neil? Should she have been so surprised? Well, I kind of felt like it was the type of response that you would expect from a competitor like her, uh, especially one of her stature. Um, She expects to win every tournament. And so, you know, getting ousted in the third round is not something she's used to. She going into that match, she was 12 and two in her career uh, at that stage of the French Open and 59 and eight in all Grand Slams in the third round. So I think you have to have that belief uh, that you're going to win. And so I was actually a little more surprised by the comments that her coach had, which sort of said, yeah, it's a disappointment, but she sort of knew that she didn't have a chance because she's been going through all of these injuries this year so far. Um, she had an ankle injury in January, a virus in March, a knee injury uh, in, in sort of the spring, uh, the early spring. And so, you know, given all that and the fact that she's 37, like a objective uh, onlooker would probably look at it and be like, yeah, you know, she wasn't in top form and making it to the third round is probably what you would expect. Yeah, it was an upset, but, you know, uh, her playing the way that uh, she has been and struggling the way she has with, with injuries, you know, it's not a surprise. So I think it's the difference between, you know, the athlete's own self-belief, which you don't get to be Serena Williams without having that. And you don't get to be uh, one of the best players in the world, even at age 37, which is unheard of, right. we, we should say, without having that. Uh, and, and so there is sort of that difference between um, the, the mentality you have to have and the realism of what you can expect. I think we expect her to, you know, win every tournament too, even, even after everything she's been through, even in dealing with injuries this year, we still expect her to win. So it's a surprise to us, too, right? Well, I mean, she she is not that far removed from a year in which she almost literally did win every single yeah. Grand Slam. So and, and other years in which, oh, you know, she's in the final every year. Uh, and so I think, you know, if you look at that stretch, even after she came back from the complications of her pregnancy, she was in two finals last year uh, of right. Grand Slams. So... You know, by those standards, those are the ones that you sort of set for yourself. It is disappointing to be knocked out of the tournament that early. So it is interesting to think about, like, at what point should a Serena Williams that approaches age 40 start to lower those expectations? Or should we start to lower our expectations for her? And I don't know the answer to that. That's sort of the the question when it comes to all-time greats is when do you start do you count them out too early and, you know, maybe produce hot takes about how they'll never win uh, and then have them prove you wrong? Cough, or, Brady, cough. Yeah, uh, you know, Tom Brady has has certainly seen his share of those. Um, Tiger Woods is another one. You know, he had different reasons for sort of falling off and went a longer period of time without winning than Serena has since her last uh, win. But it is sort of similar. This sort of happened to her sister even. You know, it, it she sort of hit this point where she was dominating and then a lot of injury problems and then 
sort of embrace this kind of strange underdog role, I think, um, where, you know, if you saw her making the quarters or something like that, you, you start pulling for her. I, I'm not saying Serena is, is at that level yet. I mean, I, I do think she's going to win more slams. Maybe more slam, <laughs> more slam. Um, but I think she will. <laughs> she'll win a slam, mm. I think. Do you think she'll be ready for Wimbledon? If there's a tournament of the slams that I like her chances in, it's obviously Wimbledon. I mean, I think you can see older players do better there. It's obviously less rallies, less running. I think what she's alluding to is the knee injury has affected her conditioning, um, uh, which is so huge, especially Roland Garros. She also just hasn't been playing very much since the Australian Open at all. Um, And it's hard for anyone to come in that cold, especially on that surface on clay and and do well there. I mean, I think she's really intent on catching Margaret Court. So she needs one more slam to do it. The thing about that, though, is it's such a ridiculous record. I mean, I don't even know why we are. Let's just give her the record. I mean, Margaret Court was doing it mostly before the open error so you had a lot of amateurs she won 11 of all her slams in australia she's australian the other top players just weren't even going to that tournament for a while so it's not even really a real record so serena if you're listening and you're probably not listening you have the record you're the greatest of all time you you've done it don't don't stress over that i mean but i do think she wants you know pass graph and she wants to keep going she wants to cement that legacy and that's the same type of mindset that causes you to be disappointed at being knocked out in the round of 32 in a tournament in which you probably didn't even have given your physical condition Mm -hmm. the any business even making it that far necessarily so you know it's just a different mindset i think when you're talking about one of these all-time greatest players. Mm -hmm, Definitely. Well, the French Open has historically been an unpredictable tournament anyway. The clay courts slow the ball down and make the ball bounce higher, which is often tough to adapt to for big servers like Serena. But it seems to be even more pronounced lately for the women. Jeff, what might be going on there? I feel like it's a return to form for the French Open. We saw this like on the men's side before Nadal came along when it was just a different uh, a player every year winning the French Open and then never being heard from again. You know, your uh, Albert Costa, Juan Carlos Ferreira types. Um, And then Nadal came in and he's like, okay, I'm just going to win this every year for the rest of time. And it sort of changed our perception. But if you go back to that mentality, this is the slam where because of the surface, because it takes like a different skill set, to succeed, you see unpredictability. And also, they don't play very much clay. What's more shocking to me is what's happened on the men's side, where it's just the most predict... I mean, tennis has been predictable on on the men's side for a long time, but to see it this predictable, even in in Roland Garros with, you know, Federer, Djokovic, and all the same names. Um, So it's not that surprising to see a lot of upsets in this tournament. If it was happening in the U.S. Open, it was happening in Wimbledon, I think it would be a little more surprising. We haven't had a back-to-back winner on the women's side since 2007. Ten different winners in 12 years. So a lot of that is just kind of unfolding. Although you brought up 2007. That was the last year that Justine Enna won. She had won four of the five French Open titles between 2003 and 2007. She really was kind of the, the queen of clay. So why was there a queen of clay then and there isn't now, do you think? 
Serena Williams. Um, I think anyone, you know, who was really good at this surface would often run into her. And um, even if she didn't win, she she knocked a lot of people out. She has won it three times, which is also, it's not like she's never won it. She moves well enough that she can win on clay. She's just not moving super well right now. Right. She's won it twice since 2013. So, you know, already she was sort of approaching her mid thirties at that point. And I think that goes to what you were saying earlier that like, if you're a player of this level of monumental talent, uh, maybe as you get older, the types of surfaces that favor your game will just sort of shift. Not that she hasn't won. I mean, she's she's won all of the um, the slams, uh, at least one of each uh, since 2014. Uh, and, and then in 2015, she won each of the first three uh, before losing the U.S. Open. So, you know, I think... She's obviously just a great player, but maybe there is something to um, to Clay because it is interesting. No, like you were saying, Jeff, nobody has won the French in back to back years since 2007. Mm-hmm. But the, maybe that's the tr- the truth of women's tennis aside from Serena. Anyway, well, that's a good point. The parity in tennis is in women's tennis is amazing right now, particularly in comparison to the men's side, which is so dominated by the same three or four guys. But in women's tennis, it really does seem like it's a wide open field except for Serena Williams. Right. And and maybe that's a good thing uh, for women's tennis relative to men's tennis. Like, what does it say about men's tennis that that same group? I know it was a special generation with Nadal uh, and Federer and Djokovic and Murray uh, that they sort of sucked all the air out of men's tennis for a good we're going on 20 years like Serena Williams at her peak was really unbeatable at her very highest level and it did seem like there weren't many challengers but now you know Serena loses just a little bit off of her game because of injuries and various other time away from the game Uh, and there are people that are just right there to Mm -hmm. sort of upset her I mean she's made Grand Slam finals and been upset in them but it it is sort of a pattern uh, of of people actually being able to challenge her and that says something in a sport like tennis where the true best player does tend to win in the long run mm-hmm. uh, more often than not. So I don't know. I, I kind of think that this is exciting for women's tennis, that there are players that sort of are challenging. And again, Osaka seems like a true, you know, future superstar. I mean, she already is one, uh, but someone that could challenge for these, you know, records down the line. Uh, whereas in men's tennis, it's like, it's the same damn thing we've been seeing for forever. I think on the women's side, we've seen this also before where a player will come out in their 20s and they'll just look awesome. And you're like, wow, we're going to be seeing Lee Na in the finals for 10 years. We're going to be seeing Azarenka, you know, every year. And it is just show it's a testament to Williams and what she's accomplished to how hard it is to sort of age into tennis to, you know, start collecting majors in your late 20s on the women's side. It's really just unheard of. I mean, Wozniacki won her first major, what, last year? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Osaka. It's really hard to sort of count on anyone sticking around on the women's side. It's just fascinating to me how different the men's and women's sides are because you have these dominant players on both sides, and yet there are so many more women who are challenging the top players. And they don't, 
you're right that they don't stick around necessarily, but they're there challenging in these tournaments. And on the men's side, you don't see anyone else challenging in these tournaments. I mean, how many finals have been Federer and Djokovic or Nadal and Federer? I mean, over and over the same three to five guys in the finals. It does seem like there is another generation now ready to jump in in men's tennis, but the men at the top aren't letting go. But we've said that before, too. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, that's, that's what they were saying about, you know, Joe Willie Sanga. He never won a major or, you know, Monfields or uh, these guys, you know, like, oh, this guy is going to be the next one to break in. We've been saying that for, for decades. Djokovic is 32, which is the same age that Pete Sampras retired. Like he was he just couldn't do it anymore and it couldn't compete with the younger players. So he retired and Djokovic is still like the number one in the world and is the num- seated number one still in all these tournaments. And you think, yeah, he's probably going to win. Right. It's fascinating to me how that how much that has changed over the years and how different it is between the men and women. And I think that's also what makes Serena Williams so incredible is that, you know, she did sort of follow that standard Grand Slam champion, multiple Grand Slam champion career arc where you peak, you know, in your early to mid 20s and then you sort of dip down uh, a level after that. But What's incredible about her is she sort of had the second peak to her career. Our, our old colleague Ben Morris actually had a story about this, uh, that that Serena in her 30s really almost approached the same level that she was in her early to mid-20s, and nobody ever does that. Like, if you plot out the career arcs of all of the other uh, great tennis players from throughout history, none of them really had this sort of, like, camel hump in their career path where they actually reclaimed their previous value after sort of dipping down a little bit. And so, yeah, with her, it's kind of the question of, is she still riding in the, the, at that same, you know, second career peak level, or is that finally starting to recede? Is that going to give other players a chance to sort of step in? Because nobody really claimed that for themselves during the period in which she uh, dropped off before her second peak. Um, So... Yeah, but but she's the one that's doing that in women's tennis and the only one that's right. ever done that in women's tennis. Didn't Andre Agassi kind of have a, a second chapter that was slightly unexpected after kind of going away for a while? You know, I'm talking about bald Agassi versus neon <laughs> Agassi. There really were two distinct errors where he was, you know, a challenger or good, won a couple majors disappeared for a long time came cut back. off jorts wearing andre agassi <laughs> uh, mulleted andre agassi versus to husband of steffi graf agassi thoughtful soft-spoken bald andre agassi <laughs> as he was later years. yeah well and he changed his he did change his game too where he became that amazing returner in his like second the second half of his career and that no i think that's definitely true though that he did have this renaissance where um you know he didn't win a slam after the 1995 Australian Open until the French Open in 1999. And then he went on to win five more slams between 99 and 2003. But the important thing to remember there is even by 2003, he was still just 33. That was the last major that he won. So Mm -hmm. when we're talking about the second career peak for him, it started in his late 20s. That's sort of how the tennis aging curve is, is skewed compared with what we think about for other sports in which... You know, baseball players peak at 27 
for a 27 year old tennis player, you're kind of washed up unless you have one of these little late career renaissances. Yeah, yeah. Well, the quarterfinals are taking place right now, but we're looking forward to the finals this Saturday and Sunday. And before we move on, a quick word from a sponsor, ButcherBox. Nothing compares to ButcherBox when, when it comes to getting the best high quality meat conveniently delivered right to your door. ButcherBox delivers 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, free-range organic chicken, and heritage breed pork. They work closely with the best farms and companies committed to raising animals humanely. This ensures not only an ethical process, but one that results in a better quality, better-tasting, more nutrient-dense meat with no added hormones or antibiotics ever. From grass-fed beef and free-range organic chicken to wild-caught sockeye salmon from Bristol Bay, Alaska— ButcherBox has more than 20 cuts of meat to choose from, with customizable boxes and a variety of other options. ButcherBox is an affordable way to get meat you can trust. With free shipping, you can get a month's worth of the best-tasting meat from ButcherBox for less than 6 bucks a meal. ButcherBox is still offering new members the Ultimate Barbecue Bundle and $20 off your first box when you sign up at ButcherBox.com takedown. Sign up now and get this incredible offer before it's too late. That's two New York strip steaks, baby back ribs, and two pounds of ground beef, and $20 off your first box at ButcherBox.com slash takedown. That's ButcherBox.com slash takedown. Major League Baseball kicked off its three-day amateur draft on Monday night with two college players and one high schooler taken in the top three. Baltimore selected Oregon State catcher Adley Richman at number one, Kansas City took Bobby Witt Jr., a high school shortstop from Texas, at number two. And the Chicago White Sox picked Cal first baseman Andrew Vaughn at number three. The draft is a bit more convoluted in baseball than in other leagues. When asked about the process, Arizona Diamondbacks GM Mike Hazen told USA Today, The draft is very risky. It has always been risky. There are things you don't know about that you're going to find out about after you take the players. This isn't the NBA or NFL. Neil, explain to us how the baseball draft works and why Hazen and other GMs might find it so risky. Well, one of the things that makes it so different than uh, those other sports is just the sheer length of it. So in the NBA, there's two rounds. Uh, The NFL goes seven rounds. And in uh, baseball, there's 40 rounds uh, plus five sort of quasi rounds for compensation picks and competitive balance lottery picks. Also, those words I just said are (laughs) are uh, exist. Uh, But basically, there's like they're drafting more than twelve hundred players over three days. They don't have a lottery. In baseball, they just do it in reverse order of the standings. Uh, and so you had the Orioles picking first overall after truly putting together one of the most abysmal teams in baseball history last year. Until uh, this year. Until this year. <laughs> and then the other big differences are these players aren't going to make an instant impact uh, in the pros, which is different than, well, I guess technically they'll be in the pros, but they'll be in the lowest <laughs> rungs of professional uh, baseball. They won't reach the majors for uh, a number of years. You know, that's very different than both the NBA and the NFL. I, I don't know that they're harder to project. They they seem – I haven't done a real study on the, the rates of success. But when I did a little look at uh, – for the purposes of Kyler Murray, who was picking between the NFL draft and uh, the baseball draft, it did seem like high draft picks in baseball – 
tended to become stars in baseball uh, more than just generic college, you know, top college pr- uh, program quarterbacks did in the NFL. But I think that that might be overselling the the degree to which you can project stardom for uh, baseball players. If you pick a high school player, they can go to college. They right. they can sort of decide not to sign. And there's a lot of strategy around how to play things with these guys and how much bonus money to spend. And there's a bonus pool. There's a lot of differences. And it's really convoluted compared with some of the other drafts, which are themselves convoluted. Right. <laughs> Uh, Jeff, what are teams looking to accomplish in their draft picks? Like, what's the strategy of a team like the Diamondbacks with so many high picks versus the Red Sox who didn't have a first-round pick this year at all? I mean, I think with the baseball draft, I mean, honestly, having many picks is, you know, it's just like more lottery tickets. Paul Goldschmidt at Arizona was taken 246 overall, um, and obviously he was like, a huge star for them. And then Jacob deGrom on the Mets was 272nd. And, you know, the, the, the Red Sox built that core, you know, Mookie Betts in the fifth round. I mean, there, there are, there are people up and down the draft board. It is unlike, I mean, he's right in the sense that it is unlike the other sports where you you can find people late. Think about it. I mean, like in basketball, if a guy's six eleven and he can hit threes, yeah, probably going to be pretty good. Um, in football, where you're drafting a, a lot more for need. You're filling sort of 22 specific positions and skill sets. But you also have that physical component. You guys, 300 pounds, and he's running a 40 in X amount of seconds. You know, he's obviously sort of a, a rare physical specimen that we should have on our team. But you don't really have that in baseball. You, you don't really know. And I think that's kind of interesting uh, also in terms of the trends that we saw play out in the the beginning of the draft yesterday which was, you know, there's always been talk of high school pitchers being the most risky of all the picks in in baseball. So yesterday, the first 10 selections were dominated by hitters. In general, the whole first round only had two high school pitchers, which is the lowest number in a long time. So I think it sort of tells you that teams are trying to take this, this tack of, will find pitchers outside of the draft. And that uh, I think teams like the Tampa Bay Rays and some of these other teams that, you know, we've uh, certainly the Astros, we've seen teams pick up pitchers off the scrap heap and turn them into not just serviceable, but really good. It might be tr- signaling that teams will find it easier to make a pitcher, but that hitters are sort of born. Mm. The other thing that I found interesting was there's all this talk about this guy, Andrew Vaughn, um, being a first baseman who might get picked at or near the top of the draft, which never happens. He ended up being drafted third. The last time that a first baseman was drafted that high was Eric Hosmer in 2008. Uh, and only one first baseman went uh one other first baseman went in the top three in the last 20 years and that was adrian gonzalez in 2000 uh and so there was this talk of well if he goes really high maybe it will mean that teams don't care about defensive positions as much because when you draft a guy as a first baseman he doesn't really have much room (laughs) to uh, go on what they call the defensive spectrum uh which which orders the positions from difficult to not difficult first base is just about the most not difficult position you can get outside of designated hitter and so teams prefer to draft players that play a more difficult position because there's more room as they age and get slower and worse defensively to move them to places where they can still have value as a a hitter when you draft a first baseman 
there's not really much room to go. Then at the same time, nine shortstops went in the right. first round, which were the most in the first round uh, since 1965 when they started the common draft. Uh, so I don't necessarily know what to make of those trends, but it is interesting to think about how even when you choose to draft a hitter, there is the the idea of where will he play and can his bat support uh, moving him to a less difficult defensive position? Sarah, who was the last uh, catcher taken one overall? Do, do you know? Well, let me tell you, Jeff. A little guy I'd like to call Joe Maurer. And I remember the Twins took some heat for taking Maurer and not taking um, Mark Pryor. Oh, Mark Pryor, yeah. yeah. They took some, some heat for that. Well, who had the better career? Well... Joe Maurer did. Thank you very much. <laughs> but Joe Maurer moved to first because, right. you know, that's another a sort of example of why you pick someone you can move around. If you're at first, what are you going to do? Just move him to DH, I guess. Right. And, and Mark Pryor uh, really kind of burnt himself out as a pitcher very early uh, and sort of is one of these great case studies of how a pitcher with um, immense potential at age like 22 can be basically out of baseball by 26. Last one overall catcher before him, Ooh. Neil BJ. BJ Suroff. Oh, wow. <laughs> Who played every position, if, if memory serves. <laughs> well, right? yeah, it is kind of amazing. I think we can probably go back and, uh, you know, maybe not catchers specifically, uh, but going back to what I was saying earlier about picking guys at difficult positions and then moving them off. I mean, Gary Sheffield was, uh, was a shortstop early in his career, uh, and you can kind of go down the list and find guys that were drafted at what positions we would not associate them with, we'll, we'll just say, <laughs> because as they get older – if they become better hitters uh, but lose foot speed, you have to sort of find somewhere to put them, and that's the concern with Vaughn is, you know, I hope he's a great hitter because otherwise, who knows? <laughs> right. So what do players make of this system? Uh, Neil, are they trying to find ways around it? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, well, I think in all of the drafts, you're seeing this trend of realizing that it's kind of a really unfair system and you are at the mercy of these teams from the second that you declare for the draft you have no choice over where you play you, you just sort of have to do what they say and and you get paid almost nothing in in baseball especially until you not just make the majors but are in the majors for at least three years if not six years to really get a payday uh, and so we're seeing um, some of these prospects for instance Carter Stewart who uh, was drafted by, I believe, the Braves last year. He didn't sign with them. Uh, and instead, he's 19. He's a pitcher. He's going to go to Japan on a $7 million contract and, and sort of almost like a reverse of you know what we've seen with like Otani and, and Ichiro and some of these guys. Uh, so it's interesting to think about people trying to do this as sort of a first step to at least make make a good amount of money a fair amount of money early on on the chance that they don't actually turn into stars and that is even if you do turn into a star we're seeing free agents in baseball not get the paydays that they expected when they finally did hit free agency uh and so i think this is sort of an unintended consequence that major league baseball might face more uh in terms of not having access to the full pipeline of talent that they expected and it's their own fault if they had just 
paid free agents more mm-hmm. and given more of an incentive to uh, players to sort of enter the pipeline the way that they have always done it, maybe they wouldn't start seeing this. But we're seeing it in basketball, too. Um, just last week, one of the top high school recruits um, decided to play overseas instead of uh, going to college for a year. You know, I think drafts, as we know them, will start to have some major changes. They're going to have to have changes because people are finally realizing the way that they can sort of get leverage uh, in a way that they didn't think that they could in previous generations. And we just assume, I think, because things have always been a certain way, that they will be that way indefinitely. If teams can overhaul the way that sports are played and and start to put in some, frankly, anti-labor practices in the way that they treat uh, their players— then why shouldn't we see the prospects also try to kind of stake out a claim against that? Right. This is sort of the natural swing of the pendulum. The interesting thing to me about uh, Carter Stewart is that he's a pitcher because you you think actually you, you would think like a hitter, you know, a guy can hit, he can go to Japan and hit and, and what's really going to change. Whereas like we're a pitcher, a lot of it's about how they're developed and how they're coached and it's different. They don't put as much emphasis on pitch count and, um, I think, you know, we've always heard grumblings about some of these guys coming over and, and immediately having shoulder problems that weren't recognized when they were pitching over there um, or elbow problems. We'll see. I mean, it, it, it's an interesting move. I mean, it, it's $7 million. It sounds pretty good, um, considering nothing over here is guaranteed. And the important thing to remember is that because Stewart is so young right now entering Japan, that it's still possible for him to come back to the U.S. and get a payday over here in the majors. He was able to do this because of a loophole in the current collective bargaining agreement um, that allows you to sort of go outside of the, you know, sort of self-contained major league top-down system if a team from another league like Japan sort of comes comes calling. And you know that the teams are going to want to close that up in the next mm-hmm. uh, CBA negotiation uh, because the presence of some kind of competitor league that's actually willing to sort of uh, pay prices for players is sort of an untenable position for Major League Baseball to allow. We can have no threats to our monopoly. (laughs) uh, But actually, literal monopoly, given their antitrust exemption. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think that could be sort of a bargaining chip that the players use to extract some kind of concession. But who will benefit from whatever concession that they get? Uh, We've seen the Players Association uh, in all sports sell out the younger players uh, to sort of appease the older veteran players. Uh, And so I don't know who will actually benefit, but it could be another example of uh, the, the union sort of shutting off uh, a way in which younger players can get fairer value uh, as a way to ensure more money going to existing players. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out over the next couple of years in labor negotiations. All right, well, let's leave that there and move on. First, we'll pause to hear from this week's other sponsor, ExxonMobil. Plants capture CO2. What if we could help industrial plants capture it too? Think how we could help lower emissions. More and more scientists think carbon capture is key to reducing CO2 emissions globally. It's one why ExxonMobil is helping industrial plants be more like plants. That's the unexpected energy of ExxonMobil. At 
538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. For this week's rabbit hole, we have a very special guest, someone who's actually been a part of every hot takedown, but out from the control room and in the studio, our producer, Grace Lynch. Hi, Grace. Hey, guys. It's nice to be on this side of things. <laughs> All right, Grace, take it away. So this weekend, I was chatting with my parents about the week's worth of sports, as one does when producing a sports show. And they said, have you caught any of the Women's College World Series? We can't take our eyes off it. And I was like, no, but I'm going to now. And thus, I descended into a very elaborate rabbit hole regarding the Women's College World Series, the players involved, and where they're going afterwards. The Women's College World Series is taking place presently between the number one ranked Oklahoma Sooners and the number two ranked UCLA Bruins. It's the first year that the number one and the number two seed are facing off against each other, which is very exciting. Both teams are also very much dynasty legacy teams. Oklahoma has won two out of the last three NCAA softball national titles. UCLA hasn't won since 2010, but they hold the record for the ultimate number of D1 titles with 11. Oklahoma has had an absolutely insane year. They had a 41-game winning streak in the regular season. Their hitting leads the nation in batting average with a .347 and home runs with 111. Every hitter on their Oklahoma team has more than 25 RBIs and four players, Jocelyn Allo, Sydney Romero, Grace Green, and Callie Clifton have over 50. And Oklahoma only had 19 errors in the regular season and were tied with the best fielding percentage in the country with a .987. So offense, defense, they've been killing the game. And so we're very much favorites going into this until we get to UCLA's Rachel Garcia. Now, this is where I really got into it because she is such a phenomenal pitcher and I have a soft spot for um, fast pitch pitchers because I was one um, for one season when I was 12 years old, and it was very formative for me. I was uh, mediocre at best, and uh, I cherish those memories. But prior to starting the finals, she had pitched 52 and two-thirds of UCLA's postseason innings. She's 27 and one for the year with an ERA of 1.09 with 282 strikeouts. She was crowned the National Player of the Year for the second year in the row, and this was all before she had an absolutely insane performance in the semifinals against UW, University of Washington. As we call it. <laughs> As we call it out west. She pitched 10 innings, throwing 179 pitches, striking out 16 batters, and allowed no runs, even with all the bases loaded in the eighth. And in this exact same game, she had a walk-off three-run homer in the bottom of the 10th to send the Bruins into the finals. Whoa. So in one game. In one game. She pitched 10 innings. Yeah. 179 pitches, yes, 16 which, strikeouts, mm -hmm. no runs allowed, mm -mm. and then hit a walk-off three-run home run. Yeah. Wow. She was also the manager. <laughs> she drove the team home. <laughs> she's the mascot. She called the game in between innings. She's, she's wild. So I, as soon as I found out about this phenomenal game and her phenomenal performance, was gearing up for game one of the finals on Monday night. It's a three-game series. Surprisingly, Oklahoma made some very uncharacteristic errors and allowed UCLA to get an early lead, which they then exploited to blow out for a 16-3 win, which is the most lopsided outcome ever in a Women's College World Series game. Oh, wow. And this is happening to Oklahoma, which only dropped one game by a margin larger than six in the entire season, and in the past 25 games had only given up three runs total. So they clearly just had a a crisis and are, I'm hoping, going to rally for game two so that we can make this a three-game series. 
ESPN is streaming it. Everyone should be watching. <laughs> I'm now committed. <laughs> and it's played in Oklahoma City, right? Yes. So that's Oklahoma has a pretty nice setup there. Yeah. Yeah. No excuse to lose 16 to 3 in your own stomping grounds. No Come excuse. on. And so it's clearly just a moment of, you know, the pressure getting to them being the number one seed going into it. The senior class is trying to win, you know, three out of their four years. I mean, that's such an exciting opportunity. So I understand where the nerves come from, and I'm hoping that they can they can make a tighter race of it here towards the end. Although 11 of the last 14 three-game series have gone to the team that won the first game. Oh, so UCLA has a, has a leg up. But in light of our conversation about the MLB draft, I was wondering where are these women headed next? Because they've spent their college careers becoming these professional phenoms. What are their next goals? And because I've decided I'm the head of the Rachel Garcia fan club, I was particularly interested to see where she was going. And her goals are to play in the 2020 Olympics with the national team. But that gave me pause because I remember that softball and baseball haven't been a part of the last two Summer Olympics. And a, a quick aside is I am fully obsessed with the Summer Olympics. I, I even went to the Lausanne Museum for the Olympics in Switzerland and cried through the whole thing. Because I find the Olympics to be a very emotional experience. <laughs> Are you a summer only or no, no, both? No. I also love winter. <laughs> okay. I just I have to be honest that I'm more invested in the summer, mostly because there is women's gymnastics, which I mm. care deeply about. But also, truly, if there is a podium ceremony, I am crying. It does not matter what teams are and countries are being Same. represented. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a mess. That's true for most people outside of Norway, also. What, that they prefer the summer. <laughs> yes. Or that yeah. they cry through. <laughs> Norwegians right. don't cry. They're very stoic. No. The tears freeze <laughs> on Norwegians <their> never cry. <laughs> so in trying to figure out if softball had come back, I went and looked at the chronology of softball's very complex road with the Olympic Committee. Japan and the U.S. have been lobbying to have softball entered into the Olympics since the early 1950s, but weren't technically eligible under a bunch of different standards and regulation until 1969. But even after they were technically eligible, they were still deemed by the IOC as too big and too expensive, <laughs> along with roller skating and water skiing. Ugh. Then in 1992, they made another attempt to have it be a demonstration sport. But the IOC said that that would be an undue burden to organizers. That was particularly annoying because men's baseball had already been accepted as a medal sport. So what was the undue burden? Well, the mount, raising the mound, obviously, yeah. too much trouble. <laughs> yeah, that, that was clearly it. It was a pile of dirt that stood in their way. However, then this took me down a rabbit hole of Olympic demonstration sports because these are wildly important and everyone should know about them. They technically ended in 1992, but up until that point, this was an opportunity for the host country to showcase like a local or more unique sport to their culture, kind of a like for your consideration, but of the athletic world. Um, and these included some truly spectacular sports, including skewering. Um, or is how I'm choosing to pronounce it, um, where skiers are pulled by horses or packs of dogs. What? Um, this was in the 1928 Olympics in St. Moritz. You can look it up. There's videos. Uh, Glima, uh, another uh, bold attempt at a pronunciation, uh, which is an Icelandic form of wrestling, which dates back all the way to the Vikings, which was featured at the 1912 Olympics in Stockholm. Ice stock sport. A mixture of curling and petanque, which was in the 1964 Olympics in Innsbruck. Have you ever seen them play petanque at Bryant Park? Uh, on like a Sunday, they'll come out and they'll like toss those little like metal balls. So I imagine that's sort of like what this is, but on ice. Exactly. 
My personal favorite is Corf Ball. Please go watch a video of this. There's so many. Uh, this was featured at the 1928 Olympics in Amsterdam, and it involves players holding a soccer ball. And there's like something that looks like a tall floor lamp. They're just trying to lob it in. It's very. Oh, is I, this the all, like kind of basketball? Yes, it's kind of basketball, but no like dribbling. Right. There's a feeling of volleyball to it, but with floor lamps, Neil. Yeah, they just you know they go to IKEA and they buy a twenty dollar lamp and they set. That's it up. actually part of the competition. You're finding the best <laughs> yeah, lamp, right. making it through. Yeah, it. That's, that's how it's that's the teamwork that's involved. How it begins. And then a great outlier is life saving, which was in the 1900 <laughs> Olympics in Paris, which I just really strongly feel shouldn't be a competition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Competitive Aww. CPR seems incorrect and dangerous. We're on the same team here, guys. No one wants to die. So anyway, softball finally managed to enter the Olympics in 1996. The U.S. women's team proceeded to win three out of the next four Olympic golds before it was removed again in advance of the 2012 Summer Olympics. Baseball was also removed with it as well, which slightly helps ease the pain and it has been reinstated for the 2020 olympics in tokyo which is very exciting however the bad news is that it's not slated for the 2024 olympics in paris did they decide on surfing they are doing surfing that see that how's that gonna work i mean one could say that's an undue burden too but uh, (laughs) and too large and too Too uh, expensive. expensive but like why would you do one where you're at the mercies of the weather and the waves, you know? How, it, I mean, the, that's basically the entire Winter Olympics, right? No, <laughs> so. but I mean, you can make fake snow and mountains don't, you know, go away. So I feel like you can make fake waves. I've been you, in a wave I pool. I mean, you can do it, it can in happen. a wave pool, but that's like a totally <laughs> different sport. They have talked. They've, that's a serious thing. They've talked about doing a wave pool. But remember when they did surfing, they did surfing like randomly, the surfing, the pro surfing tour in, in New York on Long Island. And they basically had to cancel the tournament because there were no waves. I like your depth of knowledge of surfing competitions. I know a lot about a lot of things and also nothing about I, a lot of I things. thought that you would be a really big fan of demonstration sports if you weren't already. Oh, I'm loving it. I, I, we could do, Grace, I think you should come back and we should do 40 minutes on Gorf Ball. I want to know more about that Icelandic. <laughs> the Icelandic, the mysterious Icelandic combat sport. Is that... I'm assuming that's to the death. <laughs> most that's certainly. The <laughs> An unverified wrinkle. certain opinion. Um, <laughs> I'm most interested, I think, in skewering. <laughs> the Today Show covered skewering in just 2017. So clearly this is really big. There's an appetite out there There's for skewering. Appetite. But to bring this back to softball, where it rightfully, <laughs> rightfully lands, it's great that we have this Olympic 2020 opportunity for our women's team to perform and rep the U.S., However, their other opportunities are really small. There's the National Pro Fast Pitch League, which is the only professional fast pitch league in the U.S. And it's growing in popularity, but not necessarily thriving. There's only six teams. Their salary cap is between $150,000 and $175,000 for a 26-roster team. So most, most players are making four figures. There's been a few outliers. One of the greatest pitchers in the history of the sport, Monica Abbott received a $1 million deal, but her base salary is only 20 k and the rest is made up with bonuses, and she is considered an absolute exception. Mm. And it's a good step forward, but it's still by far no means the norm. And most of these players have to supplement 
their professional career in the U.S. with playing for corporate teams in Japan. And that's led to some pretty hilarious complications, including the 2012 championship in the United States, which suffered from rain delays to a point where so many of the players needed to leave to go back to Japan that they didn't crown a team the winner. Oh, no. So 2012 just doesn't have a champion. (laughs) And it's all because they can't afford to miss the paycheck from a place that will actually pay them a, a living wage to play. It's a bit of a frustrating scenario. And, you know, they just need to continue to be watched and supported and encouraged because these women are playing an incredible level and it's so exciting to watch. I'm convinced. I'm watching tonight. I'm yeah. Come the, on, Oklahoma. Let's get a three, a yeah. three game, game, a two. game three. <laughs> game two is tonight and game three is Wednesday. Yeah, I guess if I want to see Rachel Garcia pitch, I should be rooting for Oklahoma. So then it yes. increases the odds that uh, she'll come in in game three and bum garner it up. Exactly. And <laughs> it's, it it's up. absolutely worth it. That is fantastic. All right, well, we'll leave that there. And that'll do it for this week's show. Thank you, Grace, very much for joining us in the studio instead of just joining us as you always do. Um, And thanks for listening. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. This is still a new podcast, so if you like what you heard, please subscribe. Also, review and rate the show. It really does help other people discover the program. You can email us at podcasts at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer and contributor this week is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.